So we're continuing, continuing with Samuel and uh, looking, uh, looking for a leader. Um, I would have hated to live in David's day. <laughs> um, always waiting for the bell to toll, uh, the enemy to rise up, the pestilence to come the human heart to betray, the kingdom to fall. Glad you don't live in those days, eh? What a relief. Because, of course, there are no bells tolling here, are there? No enemies, no pestilence, no betrayers. Nothing but safety, comfort and security wherever we look, eh? We all have to live where we have to live, don't we? with what we have to live with. And one of the things that we'll find about uh, Samuel is just how much kind of irony there is uh, as we look at the life of Saul and David. David has just slain Goliath. It's hard to get your head around what life must have been like where every summer you just went to war. Goliath was the totem, the security of the Philistines. And David then goes and has a long chat with the king, Saul. Saul's son, Jonathan, the heir to the throne. This is a key part of this passage. The heir to the throne is present to witness that conversation and Jonathan is smitten with David. Saul draws David into the house that day. Why do you think he does that? Is it appreciation? Is he too smitten? Or does he just want to keep an eye on him? But Jonathan... Saul's son and heir, we read, loves David with his own soul. And because of that, independent of his father, the king, or family or personal repercussions, Jonathan makes a thing called a covenant. He cuts a covenant with David. We'll come back to that. We'll finish with that. So as they're returning from the season when Israel went to war, and once again, if if that's very foreign language to you, uh, each year in Afghanistan, the Taliban just simply wait for winter where they hibernate, and then when spring comes, they dust all their toys off because it's the season to go to war. And it doesn't matter who you think you are, Russia or America or any other ally, you're no one to them. They know they can crush whoever tries to invade them in their mountains. And this is the season for war. And war is what will be. But of course, this is ancient. This is way back then and that's now, so they couldn't bear any relation to each other, right? 
Anyway, so here's Israel coming back at the end of the season where, devastatingly, the kings would take their armies to war to secure their borders for another six or six or 12 months. And the people and army recognise David's success and declare their approval. In fact, David has everyone's approval. Everywhere, the staff, the army, the welcoming women singing about the thousands and the ten thousands, Jonathan and his younger sister Michal also give David their approval. They're besotted. And we read in verse 16 that all of Israel and Judah loved David. Didn't you hate the kid at school who was like that? Good looking, could do everything. There's probably some of you and I would have hated you. Just for that. Certainly the king sours on David. Big time. When someone who was more approved of than him comes along, Saul's mind and heart turns and like a gun sight is fixed. Verses 8 and 9, he muses, does the king, hmm, what more can he have but the whole kingdom? So Saul eyes David from that day. You could well describe it as the evil eye from that day. And we see the lens of that eye. In verse 8, it's an eye of anger. In verse 9, it's an eye of suspicion. In verse 10, it's an eye of raving. 11, violence. And it's all overarched and undergirded by fear. It's a tough eye to see through. But of course he had good reason. Because while Saul descends, David ascends. He succeeds more and more. And it's as though he can't help himself. Goliath in battle during the season of war. The army affirm him. The people affirm him. The king's son affirms him. And the girls swoon over him. I hate him. Everyone except me and the king loved him. Saul, right at the end of that reason, Saul the sneaky by this time, even cloaked his disapproval with an offer of his daughter in marriage. Twice, actually, he offers his two daughters in marriage. If you're a woman today, that should really cheese you off. Why? Because this was just a guise to draw your enemy closer in order that you could press him out into battle 
and have an enemy kill him. Now, more irony. Do you remember some other story like this? Wasn't there another king of Israel who might be in this story? Who thought that was a good idea? A little bit later on down the track? This is the, an important thing. God is not with Saul. Get that clear. Why? Because ultimately he's God. But God is with David. Not because he's better, but simply because God's God. God is with you. Why? Because God in his grace has drawn you near because he is God. Not really because of anything much, certainly that I've done or that you've done. So there are three compelling dot points. Three compelling, if that's the show, if you've just seen show and tell, remember show and tell? If that's show, let me give you just a couple of dot point tells. What are some of the things that it adds up with? Number one, God is not with Saul. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a bit of an ouch in that for me. What? God is not with Saul. Saul has no grace and no faith. It's probably the summary of why. God is not with Saul. If you want the summary, why? No grace, no faith. For remember, it's by grace through faith that we're saved, not because of works, lest anyone should boast. There is a real ouch in it, though, because it makes me ask, is God not with us? Is God not with you? Is it possible that God is not with us? In Saul's case, it's hardly a surprise. Because when we think of Saul's kingship and what we already know, we know that God has basically allowed Saul as king. He never chose him. The people chose him and he chose him to be their king. Why? Do you remember? Because he was like all the other kings. So would you think that the king that God would choose would be like all the other kings? Probably not. So you see, Saul's started on a slippery slope and he was like the other kings. He was prideful, self-conscious, self-approving, power-hungry, jealous, envious and fearful, overarching and undergirding. Think of the vine in John 15. I'm the vine, you're the branches. You can tell a vine by its fruit. You can tell what it's drawing from the ground. You can tell the quality of it as a vine by the fruit that it bears. Happy vine, good fruit. Good soil, happy vine, good fruit. Paul the Apostle picks up the idea in Galatians 5. He talks about the fruit of the flesh, the human vine without God. That vine in the soil is investing its roots down into the soil and the roots bore down into human things, in Saul's case, without God at the centre at all. And then we see the fruit of that investment. 
In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul gives the fruit of the investment of a life that bores its roots down into a soil that is based around self and values that have nothing to do with God. 519, immorality, impurity, debauchery, the great list, debauchery, you'd want to be there. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. It just goes on and on and on. It doesn't stop there. You think of it, it's there. Now, when you're making wine and you have vines, the most important thing, and I love this word, is the terroir. You know about the terroir? John, what's the terroir? It's the dirt. But it's everything that's made that dirt. It's the environment. It's uh, the type of rock. It's the amount of rain they get. It's the terroir that's made Saul. The Saul, the king that he is. And he hasn't had a good start. But it's not... These things, it's not just the fruit that lose Saul his place. These things are the fruit of a person who God is not with. They're symptoms, if you like. So Saul was excluded ultimately because he was not, he was not with God. You know, so it's always this, this and that. God's not with you. Are you with God? Saul was... God was not with Saul because Saul was not with God. And once Saul had set his course, his sight was set. His evil eye was set. It's an ugly portfolio of suspicion and anxiety and attempted murder and betrayal and even using his daughters as pawns and playthings. God was not with Saul. Saul had no faith. As God's vine... What fruit are you bearing? If people to inspect my fruit, what would we say about the soil um, I or we are investing in? Which leads me just to pray for us all now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, for us today, may our roots be drawing down into you. By faith, may you gift us with grace and a heart that seeks after you by faith. Lord, purge me, purge us from the deception of the flesh that says it's not by faith, it's by my might, My striving, my power, my skill, my energy, my excellence, my knowledge, of course my lovableness, that what really matters is what really matters. And Lord, may I long for a relationship with you, God, by faith, not by sight. God is not with Saul. But God is with David. God is with David. Grace. Receiving God's favour and receiving it by faith. But is God with David because he's the nicest guy or the best person? Is he the nicest guy or the best person? Nah. 
He's not. Stop thinking David's lovely. He's not. The more you get to know him, the less lovely he becomes. And I know many of us think, as Christians, that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And so I'm a Christian and I'm a good person, so good things should be happening to me. You say, I don't believe that. Well, I'll tell you what, I hear a lot of that. I hear that a lot. But no, God is not with David because everybody loves him or because he does good things or because he's wonderful or that he's better than Saul. If he was better, if it was a game of who's better, we'd have to ask, okay, well, what about Job? He was good. We're told he was the best of the best, but he had a horrible time. All his family were destroyed, all his stuff was destroyed, he broke out in boils, and worse still, all his friends told him it was his fault. He must have done something wrong. So what about Job, if good good people get good things? What about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet? They're about to kill him. I love it in chapter 12. They're about to kill him. And he says to God, I know, I know you'll tell me you're in the right. That's what he says to God. But I'm going to whinge anyway. I'm right with Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. I know you're going to tell me, you know, I know you know you've got it in hand, but I'm going to have a whinge anyway. Don't blame him. What about Hosea? He's told by God to go and marry a prostitute, Goma. She'll have sex with anything that moves. And she never stops. And he's told to love her. Why? Because God says she will be a mirror to the nation that they're like her. And I weep with you, Hosea, as a faithful husband in this case. So if all these people were of the formula that good people get good stuff and bad people get bad stuff, we're in trouble, aren't we? All of them were much better people than Saul or David. Yet we know that God was with each of them despite their experiences of deep distress and unfairness. So good things for good people is a fallacy and it's actually a fallacy driven by works that if you work a bit harder your life will get better and you'll give God the big tick or maybe yourself the big tick. This is salvation by works actually and it's no salvation at all. It's what the Apostle Paul would call another gospel. It's not a Christian gospel and in fact it's just human pride in performance. But it's seductive today and very common. Remember that it's always for David or Saul or anyone else salvation by grace through faith. It was then, it is now, nothing's changed. Works won't do it. So is God with you? I hope it's yes. How do you know? How do you know? Is it because you've got a job or a mortgage or your health or you live a decent life and your kids are on the rails? I hope not. 
because God is with David and you because of what God has done, not because of what we've done. Grace and faith. David had faith. Remember, Kieran started our service by saying he had a heart, despite everything that he did was awful. His heart longed for God's favour by faith. That's why David, or why God is with David. David had faith. The prophets had faith. Saul had fear. It's interesting, just a little segue, it's just so much of the world we live in is driven by fear, isn't it? Be afraid is the message we get. And someone from this community gave me this extraordinary book by Colin McCann called A Pyragon. And a pyragon is a shape that has an infinite number of countable sides. Now I just said that, but I've really got no idea what it means. How can it have an infinite number of countable sides? But the point of that title is that this book is about Palestine and Israel today, the country that's still going to war year on year on year on year since David. And in it, um, there's this extraordinary paragraph about fear. And I thought I'd read it to you. The context of the book is that two friends... Two two men become friends. One is a Palestinian Arab and the other one is an Israeli Jew. They are not friends in Israel. And they become friends over the fact that they both have small daughters who are murdered by the other side. And the book unpicks their relationship of grace and faith that brings them together and seeks not just justice, but seeks an end to occupation and oppression that gets no one anywhere. So this is the Jew speaking about fear. And I think it's instructive for us. Some have an interest in sowing hatred based on fear. Fear makes money. And it makes laws and it takes land and it builds settlements and fear likes to keep everyone silent. No one wants to declare they're afraid. And let's face it, in Israel we've got good, we've got good at fear. It occupies us. Our politicians like to scare us. We like to scare each other. We use the word security to silence other people. But it's not about that. It's about occupying someone else's life, someone else's land, someone else's head, It's ultimately about control, which is power. And I realised this with the force of an axe, that it's true, this notion of speaking truth against power, because power already knows the truth and it tries to hide it. 
That's Saul. That's what's going on for him. That's what's going on for, well, you name the global leaders today. You name the tactics that we face day in and day out to silence us and make us mute against whatever the human fleshly system is that is trying to shut us down. God is not with Saul. God just happens to be with David by grace, with faith. And finally, as we close, the third and final lesson we get from Jonathan, Saul's son, who speaks truth to power, who happens to be his dad. In Jonathan, we see what God is like and what God has done. Jonathan, Jonathan, in fact, is truly the only um, indescribably good person in this whole story. Jonathan is captivated by David. Now, who knows why? If, if, if I was saying it from the flesh, from Saul's perspective, it would be, well, he's killed the giant. What courage? Or he has a compelling charisma or he's single-minded in the way that he inspires. He's incredibly confidence-building for us. That would be the flesh spoken. I mean, he really is. David is better than Churchill. Listen to this. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Doesn't it sound like Winston? Or, or you come to me with your sword, spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of, Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. It's fantastic rhetoric. Positively Churchillian. I think for me, though, that the thing that inspires Jonathan isn't that. It's David's God is the living God. There's a challenge. Is my God a living God? Or is he a God that just props me up every now and then when the flesh fails? It's a challenge to me. Saul's small g God was always subject to human frailty, uncertainty and fear. Where was the faith that there was a hope and a way? We had some visitors for dinner last night, not Christians, very sort of, you know, have a shot at anything. Young couple, little young kids, very alternative. Um, they were, believe it or not, his name's Ari. And uh, he worked with our son-in-law, Ben, at the uni, so he's got a PhD in astrophysics or something. He's really clever. But one of the lovely things that his wife said to me yesterday, he said, we, we like being around you. Do you mind being... We like being around you as a family with not a lot of support as they, they are. And I said, oh, that's lovely, Sky. We like being around you too. She said, she said it's the hope. It's the hope. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Must be the veggie garden, that's hopeful. <laughs> she said it's the hope. Anyway, Jonathan, this is the king's son, remember, and the heir to the throne, binds himself, Jonathan binds himself to David. 
he actually gives David everything he has and protects David, we'll find in the future, from his increasingly erratic dad. He gives David everything. Jonathan gives up everything so that David inherits everything. Verse 4, he strips himself. It's this evocative language. Robe, armour, sword and bow, belt. That's symbolic of honour, dignity, authority. And he pours out with this sacrificial action himself. And he gives it all to David. This is what the Bible calls cutting a covenant. And we read about it in Hebrews. It's a serious sacrifice to unite two parties, one much stronger than the other. Jonathan, much stronger than David. The one who has everything takes the lead to make an agreement in which the one who has nothing becomes the recipient of everything that the infinitely more powerful one has. And it binds one to the other. Two become one. No wonder David was strengthened, verse 5, to go out and be successful wherever Saul sent him. But the irony isn't lost on us, is it? That the one who would be king, David, the one who God's with, is pursued relentlessly by the incumbent king who God is not with, while the incumbent son, Jonathan, cuts the covenant, effectively anointing David as successor to whose throne? Jonathan's throne. It's not Saul who's the loser, it's Jonathan. And Jonathan lays all of that down and gives himself and all he is unreservedly to David. What drives it? Love drives it. In the Bible, it's called hesed, covenant love. Jonathan is compelled by covenant love. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says, the covenant love of Christ compels us. It's the love that compels us. When we know the love, we'll give everything to it. We'll realise the everything in it and we will receive it. For Paul goes on in Corinthians, for he who gave everything died, gave everything for all that those who live, you and I, should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Chesed love changes people, transforms people. The good news of Jesus is chesed love, changing and transforming people. Paul saw, Paul the Apostle saw, that God's covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus was so compelling in its loveliness that it was irresistible even to him and leads the one who receives it to give everything for that love. Who would love that much that they would strip themselves of all they had and pour it out on you and I? David receives it. 
But he's actually not that generous in this story. While he has a genuine affection for Jonathan, at this stage, any sacrifice is totally on Jonathan's side. Believe me. So God is not with Saul, and Saul is not with God. God is with David. In Christ, God is with us, and nothing can separate us. Jonathan is with David and cuts a covenant with him. And God, through Christ, has sealed in his own blood a new covenant with us, written on our heart, Hebrews 8, Jeremiah 31, a covenant rendering all other covenants obsolete, a perfect agreement at God's expense, his son. So what? Well, it's not what happens to you. It's who you look to. It's not about being good. It's about who you look to. It's either faith or fear. Confidence in God's irresistible love in Christ. Amen.